0: Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here. Thank you to our youth choir, our youth leaders, and all of you who have made this day possible for our kids. As a parent, I just have to stop and take it all in. Listen now to the scripture today which is a little strange. You, uh, you may notice some of the themes that are consistent with the Gospel of Mark, including boats, shorelines, crowds, and people amazed at Jesus' power. But then it gets really strange. Chapter 5 of the Gospel of Mark includes the longest and most involved narrated exorcisms, found in the Synoptic Gospels. This tale of terror occurs when Jesus comes face to face with a man who is horrifying his neighbors by howling among the tombs, a defiling act for the Jews. And then there are pigs and unclean spirits named Legion. The context and the geography are important to note here with the setting considered to be in the region of Decapolis, the Gerasenes a land occupied by the Romans, but mostly a Gentile area, hence the pigs we wouldn't expect to find on the Jewish side of the lake. This pericope is saturated with military terminology, including Jesus dismissing the demons, which echoes a military command, followed by the pigs charging across the lake. And it's not a likely coincidence that the spirits call themselves Legion, a Roman regiment of 6,000 soldiers. The Romans at this time had legions all over the place, and those legions were oppressive, at least in the eyes of those who were occupied. Listen, to the pleas of this cured man and Jesus' mandate to return home to the community. Hear now from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. They came to the other side of the sea, to a region of the Gerasenes. And when he had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with the unclean spirit met Jesus there. The man lived among the tombs and no one could restrain him anymore, even with the chain, for he had often been restrained with shackles and chains. But the chains he wrenched apart and the shackles he broke into pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. For he had said to him, come out, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. He begged him earnestly not to send him out of the region. Now there on the hillside, a great herd of swine was feeding And the unclean spirits begged him, send us into the swine, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine and the herd, numbering about two thousand. And they stampeded down the steep bank into the sea, where they were drowned in the sea. Thus ends the reading.
1: over the last four weeks, we have explored some of the strangest stories in the Bible that on the surface, at least, seem so magical and mythological that we might assume that they lack any degree of relevance to our modern world today. Stories about a smooth-talking donkey and people mauling she-bears and prophets swallowing fish and a bush that catches fire but is not consumed These are strange, irrational, implausible, eye-rolling kind of stories that sound more like they belong in Aesop's fables than anything we might expect to read in Holy Scripture. And what makes them strange is that we know that these kinds of events they describe simply do not and, and cannot happen. But if after hearing these stories, we get hung up on whether donkeys can really talk or we start arguing about how it's possible that any human being could survive three days in the belly of a whale. I mean, if that's the game we want to play, then we are completely missing the point. Because the wise person does not care very much about whether or not donkeys can talk. The wise person only cares about what the donkey actually says. Just when you think that you have seen the strangest stories in the Bible, then we come across something even stranger today and a whole lot spookier in the story that you just heard read about a man possessed by demons who is on the loose and out of control, naked, out of his mind, howling like a wild animal, dragging his shackles and chains behind him through a local cemetery where he lives out this tragic and desolate and banished existence. What is it about this story that you find most strange? Is it this odd detail about his uh, demon possession? Is it the part about his uh, shackles and chains? Is it the thing about his nakedness and howling or the fact that he actually lives in a local cemetery? You can't really make this kind of stuff up. It's, it's in the Bible here. And this story uh, seems a little like a weird mashup of Stephen King's Pet Sematary and Tom Hanks' character in Castaway, and, uh, and an episode or two of Naked and Afraid, and maybe a little, a little dash of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. You put it all together and that's the story. But it's not just a strange story, it's a profoundly sad one. It is a story about human suffering, about human anguish and loneliness. And it's about the tragic ways that an entire community can work so hard to keep some people from getting well. But to understand this and to understand why Mark includes this particular story in his gospel, it helps to know a little of the backstory. On the day before this incident, today's story happens, Jesus is teaching along the shores of Galilee when he tells his disciples, uh, get a boat. Uh, Let's go across to the other side. Those are such powerful, potent words there. Go across the other side. Here in the life of Jesus, we have a threshold moment, a crossover kind of journey, An experience of going from here to there, from the known to the unknown, from the familiar to the vulnerable. Have you ever had a threshold moment in your life? Joseph Campbell, the great Joseph Campbell, wrote about what he described uh, as the hero's journey and how all great stories that humans tell, whether in film or in in books or short stories, novels… Uh, There is always uh, this uh, threshold moment for the character, that this character must leave the ordinary world in pursuit of his or her calling, and when he or she does that, they encounter some force of resistance along the way. And Campbell called these forces uh, threshold guardians. And those threshold guardians come in a variety of forms uh, in story, dragons, dragons, storms, the self-doubt of the character, uh, or sometimes villains like the Wicked Witch of the West, or Voldemort, or Darth Vader. Well, Jesus and his disciples board this boat to cross over to the other side, and they encounter a storm. And that storm rages about them all night long, and the disciples think they're going to die. But Jesus is so unfazed that he sleeps right through it, until he's finally awakened by his panic-stricken disciples. And that's when Jesus does something just as disturbing as the storm itself. Jesus rebukes the wind. He shouts at the storm. He says, in the Greek, it says, pao, which is one of my favorite words in Scripture. It means, shut up. (laughs) I love that detail in the story. It's not clear whether he's speaking to the storm or his disciples, but he says, shut up. I think he's saying, shut up, wind. I've heard enough from you. I got stuff to do, and you can't stop me. And just like that, the wind stops, and the storm ceases, and they cross over to the other side. And it's now morning, and they finally reach the shore. And The moment Jesus steps out of that boat, things begin to change in the country of the Gerasenes. As Jesus sloshes through the water toward the land, His steps, in my mind, create this ripple in the water. And that ripple goes all the way up to the shore. And it will soon reverberate throughout that entire community because Jesus has crossed over from the other side to bring significant change to the people of the Gerasenes. And that change would not be welcomed by them. None of the disciples see this man as they step onto shore, but his shouting startles them. And when they look up to see where the noise is coming from, they see this skeleton of a man who is bowing down at the feet of Jesus, shouting in full volume, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? And these disciples had just endured a midnight storm on the sea, only to now encounter this human storm on the Gerasene shoreline. This hurricane-like gale-force wind that is swirling and rumbling and thundering through the human wreckage of a lost and broken man. Can you see him hair matted, his body naked and bruised? He's covered in dirt and sores. He has these chains that are broken around his ankles and his wrists. And Jesus in that moment searches the fevered eyes of this man, just looking for a way inside, looking to make some kind of connection. And he sees immediately that this man is, as it says in the text, unclean. And this word unclean is so important here. The word is ketharta in the Greek. And immediately you hear this root word, catharsis, which means to purge, to be cleansed from that which troubles you. We've all experienced catharsis, the feeling of unloading or being released of our emotional burdens and finding genuine relief. And sometimes that comes in the form of a good hard cry. Sometimes it comes from a long conversation with a good friend or a long walk in the woods or a session with a therapist and you say, wow, that was cathartic for me. But this man is a cathartic, without release. And Jesus looks mercifully past the darkness of this man's eyes. these eyes that are wild and troubled with something that makes everyone else in his life turn away from him. But Jesus doesn't turn away. He looks inside the man, searching within him for what, it, what is necessary to be, to be cleansed, looking for what needs catharsis. What is it? In the text it says it's a demon, but maybe back in those days they didn't have words for things that we suffer from today. And maybe demon is just a good universal word for things like today we know is maybe grief or anxiety or addiction or shame or regret. What is it that this man, this man struggles with? What has broken him? Well, Jesus asks, his, asks for his name, and that's when the truth begins to emerge. The man howls, my name is Legion. And at the sound of that word, Legion, there's this whole chorus of voices that hiss inside of him. A legion, as you heard just moments ago, is what they considered a, the largest military unit of the Roman army. And he tells, by telling us that his name is Legion, we see that something deeper is going on now in the story, something bigger than just this one man's um, issues that have led him off the rails. Maybe this man, maybe he really is occupied or possessed by something awful, Uh, grief, schizophrenia, disease, anxiety. Our demons do come in different forms, but that's all beside the point for now because by giving us his name Legion, we know that this man is a symbol of his entire community, a community that happens to be occupied by the demon of the Roman army. The entire region of the Gerasenes is possessed by this occupying military force. They're subjugated. They are overpowered. They are suppressed and oppressed daily by a legion of Roman soldiers whom all the occupied people, the Gerasenes, call pigs. And so what does Jesus do as he peers into the eyes of this man? Jesus commands the demons to enter a herd of nearby pigs who immediately stampede over the cliff and are drowned. And what you thought was a strange story about an exorcism now and a demon-possessed man turns out to be this kind of radical protest story against Rome's military occupation, which has this demonic nature of its own. You see, the healing of this man mirrors the entire political system of this community, a land under occupation, a people that are possessed by outsiders whose ultimate fantasy was to someday see those Roman pigs drown in the sea. But more than just a protest story, there's something else going on. This man is a real person. He's not just a symbol or a metaphor. He is a real person, and he's broken. He's broken because he's become a scapegoat for the whole community around him. The late theologian Walter Wink suggested that perhaps maybe the community all along had been playing this game with this man, almost like colluding with him. They would feed him, they would keep him alive, they would bind him with chains that every night he was able to break repeatedly. Why would they play that game? Well, they did it because they knew they couldn't directly fight back against the Roman war machine. They would be crushed immediately. So what do they do instead? They act out their, their fantasies of revenge through this demon-possessed man. We call this scapegoating, and it is the oldest human trick in the book. The practice of scapegoating is is singling out a single person or a group of people for unmerited blame and negative treatment. It is blame shifting and then punishing the one that you've blamed when you can't solve your own problem or change your situation. But here we have Jesus crossing over to the other side to bring compassion and mercy to the wreckage of this man's life. And what happens in doing so, he leaves the entire community to finally deal with their stuff, the real demon that occupies their collective life. Can you think of some common scapegoats today? I don't think we have to look very far to find them. You know, maybe you've heard, we have this immigration crisis at our southern borders and every day we wake up and we we hear that it is growing and we think well this is new and it's bigger when we forget this has been going on for decades and what we have done as a nation instead of bringing two sides of the aisle together and solving a problem we've scapegoated an entire group of people largely the majority of which are women and children fleeing violence in third world countries. And we name them names that are other than human. And sometimes we treat them as other than human. And those refugees have become a scapegoat for a country that cannot fix a problem. Maybe you know somebody or you are somebody who lives in a system with an alcoholic and you see how everybody in that family system works overtime to try to solve that alcoholic's problem, knowing that they can't solve it, but they still work hard to do it. And in doing so, they're able to distract themselves from solving their own problems. And the gift and wisdom of Al-Anon is to say, you can't fix that. You got to work on yourself. We have... 30,000 United Methodist congregations in our denomination. And you may have heard uh, that there's a little conflict going on. And uh, for some reason, we thought, well, this just came up over the last few years. 30,000 congregations have been struggling for decades, decades over deeply theological issues. And we think that today, the exodus of about, so far, less than 10% of our denom- uh, congregations are leaving, we've always thought, well, this is over sexual orientation. This is not over gay rights, it's not over gay marriage, it's not over LGBTQ inclusion. The issue that, struggles, that we struggle with in our denomination today is not about sexual orientation. It's about theological orientation. And for decades, our denomination hasn't been able to deal with those profoundly difficult differences of theological opinion. And so right around the 1970s, the conservatives who finally realized, we can't solve this problem, they decided instead to scapegoat an entire group of people to solve for their problem that they couldn't solve. And it turned out that homophobia became this pretty amazing uh, strategy for church growth. It grew a lot of big churches. It grew a lot of churches with big budgets in communities that were growing. It turns out that homophobia is a strategy for growth, but it didn't solve the problem. Uh, it only became a highly profitable strategy, which today, 50 years later, is a highly unprofitable strategy now to preach a radically inclusive gospel. We have scapegoated an entire group of people because we cannot solve a problem. And my point here is that every community, every family, every institution, every church, every person, including you and including me, has its share of better angels and shadowy demons. It's the nature of life. But Jesus dares to cross over from the other side to exorcise those demons so that the better angels among us can breathe a little easier. But it always comes at a cost. And the key to this whole story that you heard read is understanding that exorcising our personal and our societal demons will actually cost every one of us something. That's the point of the pigs getting hurtled over the cliff and into the sea. Somebody owned those pigs. And somebody had a financial interest in those 2,000 pigs. Those pigs were somebody's livelihood. And that someone was probably not very happy about what happened to his pigs when Jesus came to town. And everybody else in the community probably wondered if their pigs were next. And nobody wanted to sacrifice their pigs so that one person could get better. Because, yeah, everything really is better with bacon. (laughs) So long as it's not my bacon. Exercising the demons that possess us will always cost us something. The great C.S. Lewis wrote about this imaginary scene that was unfolding in the forecourt of heaven. And in this scene, the angel is speaking to this shadowy, oily man. And this man has, this is odd, but this red lizard on his shoulder. And that lizard represents all the man's demons. And it constantly twitches its tail and and whispers things in this man's ear. And the lizard is this ugly thing, but the man has convinced himself over the course of his lifetime that he loves it and that he can't live without it. That's kind of the way we are with a lot of our demons. And the angel asks repeatedly if the man will allow him to kill the lizard, to dispel the shadow and cast out this demon, but the man resists. And he says, how can I tell you to kill it because you'd kill me if you did? And the angel says, that's not so. But the man protests, Why are you trying to hurt me? And the angel says, I never said this wouldn't hurt you. I just said it wouldn't kill you. And the man haltingly gives his permission, and the angel takes the lizard and breaks it and throws it to the ground. And the man crumbles, cries in agony. But then he rises up and he stands tall. And his height increases nearly to that of the angel. And then his oily, shadowed countenance becomes suffused with light. Even the lizard is transformed into a stallion. That becomes his companion. And as the man begins to weep, Lewis says, his tears were, quote, liquid love and brightness. After Jesus heals the demon-possessed man, Why did all those people, garrisons beg Jesus to get out of town? Sometimes the cost is just too high. And the demons are just too beloved. When God crosses over to the other side to get to us, to release us of our demons, will we be willing to let them die? Or will we beg Jesus to go away. Our takeaways for today, every institution, every community, every family, every person has its share of angels and demons. God in Christ comes to free us from the things that possess us. And freedom from our personal and societal demons will cost all of us
0: something. Amen.